Welcome to Health, Illness, and Recovery. I am your host, Eric Collins. Join me and my special guests as we discuss a variety of health issues and explore the many pathways of illness and recovery. Cheers. Welcome to another edition of Health, Illness, and Recovery. Today, my special guest is Dr. Kristen Riley. Hi. Hi. How's your day going today? So far, so good. Okay, so let's jump right in. So you are... um, you're doing your postdoc here, right? Can you yes. tell us a little bit about this? Yes. So I uh, re- very recently, just last Monday, started a postdoc position with the HEAL uh, lab. So it's the Human Environments Analysis Laboratory, uh, which is in the Department of Geography. And um, so just kind of familiarizing myself with a lot of their projects, I was hired on to um, do some of their qualitative research. They've collected a ton of data. They have really big um, kind of city-based projects and uh, are looking are looking for someone to uh, help out with uh, some of the qualitative data that they have related to their ActiPass program, which is a physical activity um, kind of open access, universal um, recreational activity pass for kids who are in grade five. Um, and then also they have a youth advisory council um, and so I'll be working with them as well and they kind of um, give feedback on the type of research that we're conducting on kids and um, they're working on a position statement right now uh, on vaping. So yeah, it's some really interesting work that I'm excited to be a part of. Cool, man. Congratulations, by the way. Okay, so we're going to circle back to that but I want to start off with, um, I just want, want the listeners to get familiar with you a little bit. So are you from London? No, I'm from uh, Pickering, which is just east of Toronto. Okay, so tell me a little bit about life in Pickering. I actually grew up in Oshawa, which is oh, not far yeah. away. <laughs> so what was life like for you uh, as a kid in Pickering? Um, well, I, you know, I have super fond memories of my childhood. Um, I have a younger brother and sister, so I grew up in a family of five. And I'm the oldest and uh, probably the one who is most school-oriented. Um, so I um, was a really ambitious kid. I um, went to French Immersion, so I ended up actually going to high school in Whitby, which is near Oshawa, um, for their uh, French Immersion program. And um, yeah, became interested in kind of health and um, lifestyle behaviors and health promotion and, and all those things kind of from a young age. And uh, was pretty dead set on going to med school, starting from high, high school. So um, that was kind of my plan and my direction as I uh, as I was growing up. So tell me a little bit about being the the eldest of five children. What was that like? Did you feel the pressure to um, lead by example? Or so I should clarify. My family there was five of us, but the, I was the eldest of three. The eldest of three. Okay. Yes. Um, I think uh, maybe a little bit. I think. Um, you know, when I think about like the research on um, kind of sibling order or birth order and, and siblings, I think I do fall into that more like type A type personality. Um, and yeah, definitely a leader um, within kind of my siblings. Um, I th- and I think um, we did have some of those tensions growing up, um, you know, with my brother and my sister feeling like, oh, I have to do what Kristen's doing or oh, my parents are always comparing me to what she's doing. And I think a lot of pressure was put, um, you know, on myself, not necessarily by my parents, but I just had high expectations for myself and always felt like I wanted to, um, you know, achieve, you know, straight A's and, and that type of thing. But, um, yeah, certainly took on that role. And and so what was what was 
So you went into French immersion. Now, this is interesting to me. My nieces and nephews, I think, are going down that path. I know my oldest nephews are for sure. Um, what was the motivation behind that, um, at least from what you can recall your parents telling you when you were younger? Um, uh, I came home and told my parents I wanted to do French immersion. So they are not, um, you know, they don't speak French. They're not fluent in French. But I, you know... I heard the, the spiel in class about this is a great opportunity and bilingualism is, you know, will create, um, you know, more opportunities for you in the future. And so I just thought, oh, wow, I, I'm intrigued by different cultures. I love um, languages. I want to travel one day. And so I thought, you know, I, I want to do this. Um, now, I might add that I... I'm no longer <laughs> fluent in French <laughs> and I have not been practicing. But at that time, I... Um, yeah, I, I saw it as um, kind of opening doors for me. So was everything, all, the whole curriculum um, delivered and in, 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 in French? Uh, yes. So I went to, it was a Catholic French immersion school, and all of the subjects were in French, um, I think up until grade seven or eight. And then, you know, we had, I think religion was in English after a while. Um, we did have English class. So, um, yeah, a mostly French curriculum. And then in high school, it totally switches, and only about half of your courses are in French. But, yeah. Wow. So, so you have the high expectations for yourself, and now you jump into the French immersion. And you talked about the importance of, of doing well a- academically. Were you able to, to achieve those A's and do well academically? Uh, yes. I, you know, I really thrived in elementary school and high school. Um, was, I would put myself in that kind of A category. I, I was disappointed with anything below an A. And again, not because my parents were putting any insane pressure on me, but I just, um, I really had that kind of internal drive. And that's, you know, I have, a big part of my identity was being like a straight A student. And so, yeah, I really um, was driven to, to get those grades. So during your childhood and during these times, are you involved in like athletics and sports and things like that? Um, yeah, I... I uh, played volleyball and soccer growing up, um, not at a, a super high level. My brother and my sister were more of the athletes, and um, I think that too kind of created a greater awareness about, um, you know, kind of physical activity and the importance of health and, and also brought up things like body image and um, all of these things were kind of piquing my interest in um Oh, I guess not piquing my interest, but, you know, I became aware of them. And I think that's what kind of has now piqued my interest in terms of my research area. So a couple of things Mm -hmm. I want to explore with you. The first one is your, like, at that point as a child, how, who was teaching you or where did you sort of come to the understanding that physical activity is really important? Because I feel like, I mean, these days it's really hammered home everywhere we look, really, right? But back then, was there, do you remember, like, anything like a uh, like gym class or physical education where something specific, like, kind of hit you that, like, this is really important? Um, I think primarily it was my parents. My, um, my parents are uh, incredibly fit and very active. Um, my, you know, especially my dad, he, like, bicycles to school. He is a teacher, bicycles to school every day, um, you know, runs marathons, very, um, very active. And it was kind of instilled in our family, our activities, you know, we're going hiking. Um, one time my dad told us we were going to Darien Lake, but instead we, <laughs> we went to, 
um, Lake Placid and had to climb a mountain. And we didn't even stop at Darien Lake on the way back. So Darien Lake was just not... <laughs> no roller coasters? <laughs> no, no. It was a, it was a big hike. Um, or we, like, biked to um, the Niagara area. So, like, we did a lot of kind of, like, fitness and... and um, exercise growing up um but if I if I think about when I'm hearing like what I heard in in my school environment or outside of like my family environment um you know I think body break like yes I remember um, yeah yeah (laughs) I remember seeing those kinds of kinds of like PSAs on TV um and then Suzanne McLeod, I think, and the other yeah, guy, <laughs> Hal Johnson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, yeah, I do. I do recall seeing that. Um, and I think too, um, maybe because it was like you know that's how my family was. A lot of my friends were act- were active, so you know we played sports together, um, or we ran cross country, and and so yeah, I fell into a group of friends that was quite active. But before I get to the next um, topic, I want to ask you. Did you did was this physical activity paralleled with like healthy diet and nutrition in your household growing up? Um yeah, I'd say the less emphasis was on kind of what we were eating. Um you know, my mom I was able to cook a lot of meals. She was working part-time. Um so yeah, was able to um make our lunches or sometimes we were able to go home for lunch. Um yeah, all of our dinners were kind of made from scratch and so we were fortunate in that way that um that my mom was and and dad sometimes were able to to do that for us um but I think if I like think back to kind of what the focus in my family was on it was definitely more so on on getting physical activity so you spoke about body image and I know how important of a topic that is especially for for young women right Mm -hmm. or in teenage girls even like children, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Boys too as well. But did you at any point find yourself with like um, confused as to like which body image is healthy and which isn't? Because I feel like this is a major issue and a major problem that we're seeing now a lot of advocacy for, Mm -hmm. you know, towards younger, younger women. Can you speak about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, I was, uh, overweight growing up, so I was kind of hyper aware of how I looked and was very self conscious. Um, you know, especially being in a family that's so fit. And like I said, my brother, my sister, my parents, um, everyone was super active, really athletic, and I kind of felt like lesser than because I wasn't. Um, and so, yeah, it's not that my family, you know, was really pointing out to me that I, you know, may have had a weight issue or, you know, may have been uh, more overweight than than they were, but it's something that I was definitely tuned into. I, I felt it. Um, and, you know, I think, um, yeah, I, I love all the body positivity that we're seeing these days and I, I, you know, the end weight stigma and, you know, looking at weight-based discrimination and really trying to, um, kind of, yeah, mitigate all this, this, the biases and things that are associated with weight. I love that. Um, and I, but I just don't know how much it's trickling down to actual, like two young girls who might be 12 or 13. Um, I think it's still really, um, something that parents find challenging to talk about and maybe that will come up when we talk about my research a little bit more but I, I don't think parents are equipped to have conversations with their kids about what healthy weight is it's such a sensitive topic mm. and so um, I think we, we still have work to do in that area 
So were there ways that being overweight as a child it affected you or limited your ability to participate in, in exercise or causing you pain, like, physically or psychologically? Can you speak about that a little bit? Um, I wouldn't say it limited my participation. I was still, like... I was still able to participate in sports. I still made teams. I was still, I would still consider myself to, to be athletic. Um, I was just aware that I was overweight. I think it's more psychological. Yeah, I, I, you know, would worry about what I was wearing or what size I was. I would definitely think about um, the food that I was eating and, you know, I would compare myself to my friends. So I think more psychologically it was something that I felt so yeah it became more of like a self-esteem issue um than it was you know causing me any kind of physical limitations okay so we'll jump back into this when we get Mm -hmm. into your research because I'm sure this is a key component but Mm -hmm. so now let's jump into change gears a little bit and go into like your experiences in high school so you into high school at this point what point in high school do you determine okay, here's my path towards university or I think I really want to get into the, the field of health. Is there a course that, that that sticks out to you as the one that really, you know, pushed you forward? Yeah. Um, I think I, I had a, a biology teacher, uh, Mrs. Willoughby, her name is, and um, she was awesome. I can't, I can't uh, thank her enough for how inspiring she was in, in that course. Um, I think it was either grade 11 or grade 12 biology. I think grade 12 where you do the dissections of the pigs. And that's yes. when I started learning about anatomy and physiology. Mm-hmm. And um, I was just so captivated by, you know, how cool our bodies were and, and, um, and how the systems work and, um, and how diseases can affect, you know, those um, those different systems. So, yeah, I think that really opened my eyes to, to wanting to get into a health-related field. So at that point, are you, do you see a guidance counselor or somebody saying, hey, you know, Western University has this program, maybe you'd be interested in that. What does that look like for you at that time? Yeah, we had different um, reps from universities come around and give presentations. And, and so I, I was pretty sure I was heading to health science, like towards health science, um, because I was kind of interested in also, you know, not so much the hard sciences or physical sciences like physics and chemistry and bio. Um, I, was, I was, was interested in those things, but also more of um, like the social determinants of health. I was really interested in that and didn't have much exposure to that in high school. And so um, I wanted to go into more of like the health science stream. Um, and I ended up going to the University of Ottawa. Okay. Yeah, so... Um, I was like applying for OSAP, I was paying for my university by myself and I got like the biggest scholarship I got was from Ottawa, which is why I went there. And also I kind of wanted to move away from home and, you know, be independent and, yes. and, uh, and try something new. So that's why I chose Ottawa. And so you were in the health sciences program there in Ottawa? Mm-hmm. Yes. And so, um, so then you, you made your way to Western? Well, then I did my master's of public health at Guelph. Okay. Which is a course-based master's program, um, which, again, I was still thinking I was on the med school track. I'd written the MCAT. I didn't have a great score, so I thought, okay, why don't I do the MPH program? It's like a year and a half, and then I'll reapply to med school. And then in the MPH program is when I was like, wow, like why would I, why would I focus on 
on being a doctor, you know, maybe treating one patient at a time, when it's like, we need more population-based approaches to like prevention and health promotion. And that's when I, I really got excited about um, the field of health promotion and then went and sought a, a PhD and, and more research instead. So, so you did the master's degree mm-hmm. at Guelph, which was a course base, mm-hmm. and then you did a master's degree, you jumped into the I PhD? I jumped into the PhD, yeah. So you, did, um, so you did a thesis, right? No, which is usually the master's of public health um, program is like terminal, so you just go into the workforce after, that's how it's built, you have a practicum placement, and then um, a lot of times students are hired on by whichever public health agency they've been working with. Yes. Um, so I did a placement um, with Veterinarians Without Borders, and I was working with um, chicken farmers in Laos, um, and I was a research and, and communications intern. So my job was to write a paper and to write blog posts about the work that they were doing. And um, I, I showed that writing to a prof here because she was, um, you know, I was thinking, oh, I don't have a master's, like, you know, a, a thesis-based master's. I don't know if I have the research capacity, but I'd been lucky enough to, you know, have had volunteered at, at different research labs, had written papers. I'd had a published abstract and a published um, evidence review at that point. So I think my supervisor was confident that I would be able to, you know, get the research done for a PhD. But yeah, typically it's not something people go into after the MPH. So you find the, the um, first of all, what was life like in Laos? That was uh, like nothing I'd ever experienced before. My parents were super nervous for me to go um, because I was going somewhere where I didn't, <laughs> I didn't have a telephone number, I didn't have an address. They didn't know like where I was going. Um, I was living in a small rural village outside of um, Vientiane, which is the capital. So um, I, yeah, I lived on campus and um, I lived with a, with a vet and so we kind of ran the day-to-day programs. Um, and yeah, I there I can't even describe like the we didn't have Wi-Fi. There's no the internet was done through like a USB rocket stick, so that wow. was the way I communicated. Um, like not a ton of running water. The shower maybe lasted like thirty seconds, and then we had like a bucket with water that we used to like bathe and um, yeah, totally totally different um, lifestyle. But it was yeah such a fantastic experience. What was, what would you say was, there's a couple things I want to ask about that. The first one is like, did you notice any particular health challenges that everyday people were facing there that maybe we would not see here? Um, I think the, what was most evident is the, um, like the income difference and I think I've noticed this in, in other countries that I've traveled to because I, I, was, I was fortunate enough to be able to stay longer and kind of go backpacking around after. And I've done quite a bit of traveling since then. And I think um, what I, when I see people who are, um, they seem so um, happy with, with, what they, with, with what they have. And, um, and then I look at our um, culture and, and how we live our lives here in North America. And it's like, we're always trying to get more and we don't often, um, you know, just sit and enjoy what we have because we have so much, but so many of our, um, you know, possessions, they aren't, they don't fulfill us. And, and I think a lot of, um, a lot of people kind of look for happiness in those things. Like if I get this job, then I'll be happier. If I buy this or I have, you know, this prestigious 
uh, career or, or, or education, then I'll be there. But I think, um, yeah, I was really struck by just how happy and, and kind people were in these countries when, and I was thinking, you know, I'm going to this country, you know, a low-income country. I'm not sure. I was kind of scared. I'm like, what am I scared of? Everyone here is, yeah, so welcoming. There's such a strong sense of community here, which I hadn't really seen, you know, in my suburban kind of childhood experience growing up. Yeah, we have a, a neighbors that we're friendly with, but I found that those, um, yeah, that community I was living in in Laos just was, yeah, just, just flourishing. They work so well together and um, seem to truly care about each other and everyone um, everyone really worked together. And, mm-hmm. Does your day-to-day living now, um, has it changed since that experience? Like maybe like it's something very small, like do you take showers quicker or like something like that? Do you appreciate water more or something? Uh, yes, I, well, I try to. And I think... Um, you know what I, what I learned, I guess, is that um, I just tried to want less. You know, I I tried to stop needing so many like I don't know possessions or clothes or whatever, and just um, uh, enjoy what I had. And I think the other um, experience, you know, from a research perspective, that what that I, I learned was, um, so just to quickly go over what the project I was working on was, it was a, a vaccination program. They were, um, we were, as Veterinarians Without Borders, we were trying to get farmers who had free-range chickens to vaccinate their chickens to reduce the likelihood of diseases and that sort of thing. Um, but we were trying to get farmers to buy into this program. So we wanted them to invest um, in these vaccines so that not only would their communities be healthier and less you know, diseases being spread um, from farmer to farmer, but also so that um, they were getting in the habit of, of vaccinating their kind of livestock. But um, these farmers just didn't see the benefit of it. And so we were really trying to force this program on them and, and they couldn't see, you know, their chickens would die whether they were vaccinated or not. So they're like, why am I spending money on this? And so it really gave me that, um, it really opened my eyes to understanding what community wants. And so really focusing more on community-based participatory action research and, and um, developing interventions that serve the target population that you're looking at. I think that for me was like, oh wow, on paper this this program seems fantastic. And, and in North America we'd say, yeah, of course people should be vaccinating. Of course we should be, um, you know, trying to prevent diseases spreading between like cows and chickens. And um, But we weren't asking farmers what they wanted. And so uh, when that came to light, it was, um, yeah, the whole organization was kind of like, okay, wow, let's reframe what we're doing and, um, yeah, give farmers something that serves them. So from that perspective, did it did it become clear to you that like there wasn't a whole lot of government influence on like health promotion or like because the way I see it and the way you're explaining is like you're this outside organization, right, who's coming into a country and saying, Hey, like here's what you need to do to live healthier, right? For everybody. Did you realize um that at that point that the government's role in in public health wasn't where it needs to be or what it's like here? Yeah, I think the university that we were working with was involved, and so they, um, you know, were helping us communicate with the farmers and also informing the work that we were doing. But I'm not sure of the role that that the government has in public health in that country. And I, 
Um, and I still, I'm, I'm still not sure what that, what that looks like. So um, it certainly is not to the extent that we have here in Canada. Um, but I, yeah, I don't know the specifics of, of, of how public health is administered in that country. So from there, you make your way to Western, right? Yes. And you do your PhD uh, studies here. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about what that's like, because you have to find a supervisor first, right? Mm-hmm. So you spoke a little bit about, um, you know, your supervisor. Who, who was it, by the way? Uh, Dr. Shauna Burke. So you do you pitch an idea like, hey, here's what I'm looking to do in my in my in my research. I'm very passionate about X Y Z. How does that play itself out? Um, yeah, so it's uh, kind of an, an interesting process, I guess. I um, I had done a bunch of research into um, profs here at Western and and some who I thought I'd be interested in working with. Many of whom were in health promotion or the School of Health Studies. So I contacted uh, the field leader at the time who was uh, Shauna Burke and I said hey um, I see that you're the field leader in this um, area of research um, you know I'm, I'm a prospective student hoping to come to Western I'm really interested uh, I was really interested in obesity and looking at um, policies related to obesity so I was um, approaching her kind of looking, looking to her to connect me with some other profs that I had suggested I might be interested in working with, um, and just to get her kind of advice on on what the program was like. And she said, "I can certainly connect you with those people, but I think we would be a good fit, and I would love to meet you." And um, so at that point, we arranged a meeting, and and we talked a lot about um, yeah, just what our research interests were, or, or you know, things that are kind of going on in the media that we were. Um, that we were interested in related to obesity, so we looked a lot about we were, we talked a lot about food marketing to kids, and we talked about um, you know countries that had implemented taxes on sugar sweetened beverages, and so just different policy ideas, and um, from that point decided um, that we would like to work together, and um, I still had to finish out a semester at um, at Guelph, but when I did, I was. Uh, planning to start in September the next year. Now, you've kind of touched on this a little bit already, but why policy in particular? What what made you gravitate towards that avenue? I think um, when I think about, you know, what produces the biggest change for most people, I I think policy is what um, tends to work. Um, I know that it's often a strategy that can take the longest and is, and is, you know, often slowed down by the different, you know, political forces that exist, but um, I, I was always interested in that. And now I should say, like, my research did not look at all at policies in the end. Um, we, um, we focused more on um, actually developing an um, intervention to treat childhood obesity, um, but that's kind of just where my interests uh, were when I, when I was starting out, and, and still are. I still um, kind of keep up to date with those policy policy changes and what's kind of going on in, in the, you know, obesity or childhood obesity related field. So when you first started out doing this research, sort of what was the landscape looking like in Canada for childhood obesity? Was the situation pretty bad? Yeah, um, it's right now or most recent reports in Canada and, you know, I think these have been pretty consistent. It's about one in seven children um, experience childhood obesity. And so uh, there's evidence to say that we've, we've kind of plateaued 
but you know we still have you know so yeah we're, we can't we're not saying so much like the rates of obesity are rising it's like no the rates of obesity right now are consistent there's still a ton of kids who um yeah who have obesity um, but we're not seeing the the incidence of obesity like we are in some other developing countries like in the middle east obesity is really increasing in china and india and some of those um developing countries we see obesity on the rise but yeah here we're seeing um, more of a plateau but it's still um still quite a quite a big problem so <clears throat> one in seven obese when we talk about obesity are we talking, is that like a, a, a rank above overweight? Like, what do you mean exactly by obese? Yeah, so when we talk about kids, we, um, we classify um, them as obesity based on their body mass index. Um, and and when, with kids, it's not just um, purely their BM, BMI. We look at their body mass index for age and sex. So we're comparing to kids and, ki- to, sorry, kids that are the same age and sex as, as they are. And um, kids who are over the 95th percentile are those who are considered um, obese. Okay. And overweight would be uh, 85, I believe. 